now for. Uh, and a lot of people uh, are, are talking about that anniversary, the fact that if Netanyahu would have uh, abided by uh, the terms of the coalition agreement, um, then uh, today or this week, Benny Gantz would have become prime minister. As we know, that didn't happen. Uh, we went to another elections and Netanyahu believed that he would uh, be able to form a government uh, relatively easily. He wasn't able to. Um, and so basically, uh, we are where we are. We saw that the against uh, certain naysayers, at least from the beginning, uh, Netanyahu certainly promised uh, people in his camp that the budget wouldn't pass, that the government would fall within a certain amount of months. Uh, but we saw that didn't happen. This razor thin uh, sort of mishmash of parties from the left, uh, center, right, and an Islamist party for the first time in Israel's history, joining a government we saw how it actually worked relatively well, the leaders especially, especially at the leadership level, worked really well really to try and keep uh, fires to a minimum, to keep disagreements to a minimum, really to focus on the goal, to pass the budget, to try and get something in the budget for every single party is a lot of compromises. No one got everything and that certainly doesn't happen in a coalition politics, but certainly uh, one uh, as uh, diverse as this. But now the budget is passed, there is a certain amount of stability. There's a two-year budget, so it gives a certain amount of time. And now that we have that out of the way, uh, it's almost certain that at one point, uh, Yair Lapid will become prime minister. If the government falls at any point, uh, Yair Lapid will become prime minister for the interim. In other words, the, the, the few months uh, of uh, campaign and even afterwards until our new government is put together. So it appears almost certain that at one point Yair Lapid will be entering uh, the Prime Minister's office on Balfour. But the question is now, what happens now that the budget, which was really the most uh, practical uh, hurdle that they needed to pass, has now been passed? Are we going to see a split along ideological uh, uh, issues, uh, perhaps religion and state issues, perhaps on the Palestinian issue, on uh, Arab-Israeli issues? Um, what, what, what do we see happening? So first of all, before I answer that question, I, I think we need to look at what usually happens in, in regular governments. We know that Israel has, hasn't got the most stable system. I've described it in the past, how it gives almost complete representation, but uh, limited stability. No Israeli government has ever seen out its term. The closest was, I think, about four years. It's a government supposed to last four and a half years. So usually what happens is for the first two years of a government, there is a relative stability. Everyone understands you need two years to at least have some level of achievements. Uh, and then usually there's a sort of two year itch where people understand within the next year or so, because the average is only two years, maybe two and a half years, within the next year or so, there will be elections. So every party starts thinking, okay, there will be elections at one point. What differentiates me from other people, other parties, let's say, uh, if you're a right-wing party or a religious party or a left-wing party, there's other parties to the slight left of you, to the slight right of you on various issues. So how do you differentiate yourself and whether you're going to become uh, uh, the party that brings down the government, whether one of your issues is going to bring down the government? Because again, you know that you're going to go to elections and you're going to fight it out with those who sat very comfortably alongside you uh, in the government for two years. How are you going to try and pull their voters away, uh, knowing that you sat quite comfortably um, you know, for two years and worked well with them? How are you going to differentiate yourself in the mind of the voters? That's very important with such a crowded 
spectrum, ideological and uh, political spectrum in Israel, uh, it's very important for every party to show to the voter why they, uh, you know, they, they necessarily need to receive your vote. So usually, as I said, there's a certain amount of stability for two years because during those two years, you can get a few achievements on the board. Uh, you can show uh, what, what you're about. You can you know, get some of the promises that you made in the last elections uh, on, you know, on, on paper, passing the law or whether through government or, or whatever it is. And then you can say, look, I did this and, and now I'm going to do even more. With this government, it's really an unprecedented historic government because it is probably, arguably, the most diverse in history, uh, especially on the issues which divided Israeli society for so long. When you ask someone if they're right or left in Israel, it's almost certainly on security issues, on Palestinian issues, where you stand on uh, a Palestinian state, where you stand on borders, where you stand on the peace process, where you stand on the Palestinians, Abu Mazen, et cetera, et cetera. And here we have very wide gaps. If you really look at the spectrum, regardless of what some of the opposition is saying, Yamina are pretty right wing, uh, to the right of Likud on many issues. Uh, they are solidly against a Palestinian state. And on the other side, you have Ram or Meretz, which are solidly in favor of Palestinian state, somewhere close to the pre-67 lines uh, with a division of Jerusalem, uh, some sort of Palestinian uh, presence uh, on the Temple Mount, uh, probably even some level of refugees, although there's a, there's a bit of difference uh, there. So on that issue, let's take that issue to start with. On the Palestinian issue, although there's been a, really a, a, a large amount of Israeli public figures who have gone to visit uh, Palestinian leader Mahmoud Abbas in recent weeks and recent months, it's not expected that there's going to be too much movement on the pre uh, the, uh, the peace process. Certainly ever since uh, President Biden came into office, there's been an expectation to at least move things forward at cer uh, certain levels. And as I said, you know, in the previous government, there were almost no uh, direct contacts with, um, with the, the senior levels of the Palestinian leadership, perhaps on some bureaucratic or security issues, but certainly not political meetings like we've seen uh, uh, Defense Minister Benny Gantz uh, has met, we've seen uh, leaders from Meretz, we've seen Ram's leader, Mansour Abbas, um, and they made Mansour Abbas, it was very interesting because considering where he stands on the Palestinian question, uh, he went to great pains to explain that uh, the Palestinian-Israeli peace process really didn't come up uh, in the meeting. It was more of a meeting to get to know you. Uh, and the fact that Mansour Abbas admitted or went to great pains, probably at the pressing of Prime Minister Naftali Bennett uh, to, to say that, no, we didn't discuss the, the peace process. We, we, it was a get to know you meeting. We discussed uh, Israeli society, uh, the Israeli Arab issue, uh, but not really the Palestinian-Israeli issue. And that shows really that someone like Mansour Abbas is really being quite responsible uh, and faithful to this coalition, because it's important to note that while we do have a budget and while there are, in theory, lots of achievements in there, especially for Iraq, especially for the Arab party. Nothing has happened yet. Budgets have been proposed, uh, numbers have been uh, you know, adopted, um, but nothing has been given at this point. It, it's going to take a while, uh, for example, uh, for the development and progress of uh, Arab uh, towns and cities around Israel. There's been tens of uh, billions, if I'm not much mistaken, of shekels that are earmarked now for uh, to, to develop some of these places, also to fight um, 
uh, intra-Arab violence, especially in the Negev and the Galil that's come up again uh, this week with violence we saw again uh, outside of a prominent hospital where two uh, Arab gangs were fighting each other and throwing stones at each other and shooting at each other. We saw another murder, uh, again, intra-Arab uh, murder um, in Arab society. And so there's a lot that Ram have to do before it can go back to the voters. And that basically is true of any of them, uh, any of the parties. If you look at what's still gluing this coalition together is one person, uh, to a certain extent at least, is uh, Benjamin Netanyahu. As long as he's there, as long as he's in the opposition, uh, as long as he's the leader of the Likud, uh, that probably will remain a major gel for this government to uh, uh, stay together because they know uh, that as, uh, with Netanyahu there, the Likud will be a very strong, uh, will have a very strong showing in the next elections. The problems that Netanyahu has or the other members of the Likud have, and we've talked about that in recent weeks, is while the Likud will do much better with Netanyahu, Netanyahu still fails, according to every single poll, to be able to reach that magical 61. Now, he is getting closer uh, because at the moment he only has uh, 53, or the right-wing religious bloc only has 53. And according to polls, he's at 58, 59, but to get to 61, uh, he doesn't have at the moment. So while he remains in that position, it remains a very strong clue uh, for this government. Um, there are other issues that are coming up. Uh, whether to, to uh, provide electricity to illegal, unregistered Arab towns. That's already becoming a, uh, a bone of conflict. Uh, there are certain understandings in the coalition, but a, uh, um, a committee member, Knesset community member from Ram Party, went beyond those understandings this week, which caused a, a bit of friction. Uh, now we hear Sharon Cheskel of uh, Gidon Saar's New Hope Party, who says that she will not vote with the government. Um, because they refuse to, um, to pass uh, a legalization of cannabis, at least medical cannabis at this point. Uh, she claims, and uh, her party at this stage seems to be backing her, that it's part of the coalition guidelines that such a law should be passed. Um, but there's disagreements, first of all, from the health ministry professionals, uh, but there's also a problem with Ram uh, on religious uh, Islamic principles and opposition to uh, uh, cannabis. Um, so that could cause a headache because while the leaders, I would argue, uh, have a very good relationship and they've shown that they can work very strongly together, uh, regardless of ideological differences, because uh, don't forget these are government ministers who are working together, they're bridging that uh, divide every single day. You know, the transportation minister, who's from the left-wing Labour Party, will perhaps uh, have to uh, uh, deal with uh, someone from housing from the right-wing New Hope Party. Um, and, you know, they have to work with each other despite their ideological differences. So the leadership level, is, uh, there's, there's goodwill, there's good relationships, but in a government of 61, all it takes is one member to say, I'm no longer voting with the coalition. My issue is important. They want to make a name for themselves, perhaps, at this point. They want to show that on, my issue, on their issues, they're very strong. Uh, perhaps they want to show for their own party primaries. Perhaps they want to make a play to move to another party, to maybe create uh, a new party. So that's probably the greatest worry at this point. It's not really at the leadership level. It's that the leadership has to keep every single member of their party in line. Now we see certain parts like Yeshatid, which we see, which is probably the most centrist party, which doesn't seem to have a problem. Yale appeared to have kept his 
MKs in line, not to say that they're all agreed on everything, but they're pretty uh, uh, solid on those issues, uh, which you know they need to be. But it's, it's more the margins. It's more the likes of Ram, uh, merits on the left, uh, who want to make a name for themselves, maybe something on the settlement issue, because that certainly has come up and will come up, uh, where to build, how much to build, uh, what to do with the illegally built um, settlements or hilltops. Uh, and on the right as well, they're dealing with the same things. They want to make sure that there's more building so they can say, you know, it's called a, 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 a unity government, but we will not give up on our right-wing principles. So there's going to be some disagreements. There's going to be some individuals who understand that every single MK is critical. And, uh, you know, one person can overload their, their positioning here and basically say, until I get what I want, I'm not going to vote with the coalition. Um, so that is the, uh, the, the possible strain on the coalition. Uh, we'll certainly see over the weeks and months ahead uh, who are the uh, individuals who are likely to break uh, coalition discipline and try and make a name for themselves. And with that, I'm happy to answer any questions on those issues that I've already raised or anything else that's on your mind. Thank you very much, Mr. Perry. Uh, for a very interesting uh, analysis. We'll take some questions. Um, I'm asking again, please send your questions because uh, we didn't have uh, so many. Uh, so uh, the first question, please, by uh, Sandro Balestrino. Regardless of when the next elections are held, do you think that the Prime Minister Bennett has committed political suicide by bringing Ram of the Muslim Brotherhood into the government? Well, I, I, I don't think we can say regardless of when uh, elections will be held, because I think that's key. Uh, Bennett needs to have a good couple of years to show that he hasn't been affected by the more <clears throat> left-wing elements and he's able to rule an unwieldy uh, government, to show uh, prime ministerial credentials, to show that he can lead. Uh, don't forget, he is the Prime Minister of the smallest faction in the history of the state of Israel by far. <coughs> um, so he needs to have stability. It's very much in his interest, especially he's not polling great. Uh, uh, Netanyahu and the Likud are landing their punches, especially when it came, uh, comes to Ram. In the lead up to the budget, there was all sorts of suggestions that um, Israeli taxpayers' money budget, the Israeli budget was going to Ram for all sorts of nefarious things, uh, including money for Hamas. Uh, there was a, a, a very uh, long uh, show investigation into it. In the end, they, they, they demonstrated that nothing from the public purse goes to Hamas and the organization itself gives to people in Gaza, but not to, to Hamas. But it certainly was something that uh, caught the attention of people, I would argue, even who are center-right. So certainly that played into Likud's hands. And despite uh, Bennett's denials, and despite uh, Bennett trying to convince uh, people that uh, you know this is a right-wing government, I think he used the expression at one point, this will be 10 degrees to the right of the previous government. Um, at the moment, you know, it, it's not really getting through to the people. Um, you know, the polls have shown that Likud are strengthening uh, at the expense of not just uh, Naftali Bennett's Yamina, but also Gidon Saar's New Hope Party. So at the moment, they could, uh, uh, you know, sort of what they're saying that this isn't a right wing uh, 
government, that this is a left-wing government, and they keep on mentioning this is a Ram-led government, a Lapid-led government, and, and Bennett is hostage to that. It is a message which is getting through according to polls uh, on the right. So if there's elections very soon without uh, you know, too many achievements for Naftali Bennett and not enough time for people to get used to him being uh, prime minister, then certainly he will not uh, grow as a faction. But if, again, we see elections in a couple of years uh, where he's really shown his credentials, has been able to get some right-wing wins, uh, then perhaps we can see a little bit more of a resurrection there in the polls, and then perhaps that can be uh, translated uh, at the ballot box. Uh, so I think it's all a matter of time. So the first part of your question is, regardless of time, uh, to my mind, is time is everything. Timing is everything. The longer, um, uh, the, the, the further elections are pushed, probably the better Naftali Bennett will do. Uh, but if there are elections pretty soon, then uh, yes, I would say he's, he's probably in trouble. Mr. Perry, thank you. Let's uh, go further to the next question. Very uh, relevant question uh, by Bernard Lieberman. What is the status of the charges against Netanyahu? Well, we, we saw quite high profile news about this this week. Uh, there's three cases at the moment uh, against Netanyahu, which we've described in the past, the most serious one, which is uh, case 4000, which is that uh, Netanyahu specifically helped um, Bezek, which is the national telephone carrier and internet carrier uh, with legislation, with bureaucracy, uh, promoted their interests uh, in exchange for positive uh, coverage in, uh, uh, through one of the major Israeli publications, Walla, which was owned by the same owner as Bezek. That's the accusation. Uh, and, and basically the uh, prosecution at the moment is bringing its witnesses. Uh, there's been quite a lot of information. The most, probably the most important witness is taking the stand. It was actually put off a week called Nir Hefetz, who was an advisor to Netanyahu. And while the case has been made, or at least the prosecution would argue the case has been made, that uh, there was a lot of interference uh, at Walla uh, in favor of Netanyahu, really getting down to the minutiae of headlines, of the way pictures, images of not just uh, a former prime minister, Benjamin Netanyahu, but also his wife and even his son, and the attacks on some of their political rivals. Uh, what, what needs to be done is also to show that there was a quid pro quo there. It's not just enough to, for a politician to try and get themselves good coverage, because obviously every politician does that, but whether there was a quid pro quo. And Nir Hefetz, uh, being so close to Netanyahu during the years in question and having turned um, a state witness is, is extremely crucial. Uh, so much so that it came out this week that uh, some new accusations came out that some of the billionaires related to some of the other cases um, we're actually buying Sarah Netanyahu jewelry worth tens of thousands of dollars uh, at, at the couple's request. Again, these are the accusations. I'm not saying whether they're true, that's for the court to decide. Um, but basically, because of these new accusations, uh, the defense has asked for a postponement uh, of a week, which the, uh, uh, the justices have provided. Um, so it'll be very interesting to see what Nir Hefetz has to say, because obviously the state case against Netanyahu rests very strongly, not completely, but very strongly on Nir Hefetz's shoulders. And if he can give the sort of testimony uh, that he has provided 
during some of the questioning and interrogation, uh, then uh, the prosecution would uh, assume that it'll be in a good place. So we'll certainly know where the case is standing uh, in the next few weeks. At the moment, it's going really at a snail's pace. Every single witness, and there are hundreds of witnesses, are being questioned by the defense, by the prosecution. Uh, but as I've said repeatedly, uh, since this whole episode started, this is going to go on for years, uh, because even when the, the cases are found one way or another, there'll be appeals from one side or another, and there'll be a, and a whole appeal system. So uh, this isn't going to go away. Uh, if Netanyahu or the state wants to take it to the end, we could be talking about three or four years uh, down the line. Thank you very much, uh, Mr. Perry. I would like to take a question very Interesting, and I think that the fact that you live uh, in one of the biggest settlements, actually, you, you can provide a best answer. Uh, Chris Rankin asks, could you see an agreement to supply electricity to both unofficial Arab Bedouin communities and Jewish settlements? Well, I mean, uh, the Israeli settlements, I should say, because not everyone who yeah. lives in the settlement is, is Jewish. Uh, the Israeli settlements, the recognized ones, get electricity, just like uh, uh, you know, the Palestinian towns get from the Palestinian electricity. The Israeli settlements or the Israeli communities over the Green Line um, are uh, on the Israeli electric grid. Um, what you probably are talking about is some of the unrecognized and uh, in the Israeli uh, state's eyes, at least illegal, uh, sort of created uh, on their own without the backing of the state, as opposed to the major blocks. Uh, I'm assuming that's probably what they're, they're talking about. Um, but again, there would probably be quite a, a bit of a disagreement on the left, because what they would say is one uh, element is taking place within sovereign state of Israel. In other words, the, uh, some of the Bedouins in the south. Um, that's certainly the case that merits would take and Ram and, and Labour and so, some of the left-wing elements that uh, there's a world of difference between uh, you know, what's happening in the sovereign state of Israel and what's happening outside of it in uh, over the Green Line, in Judea and Samaria, the West Bank, whatever you want to call it. So I'm not sure if there's going to be necessarily a quid pro quo there, because I think the left would reject it because they would say the two things are not uh, equal and you can't uh, uh, you know, put what's going on within the sovereign state of Israel and what's going on uh, outside of it. So. I, it could be that something, uh, you know, sometimes there are compromises that go, uh, you know, behind the scenes, but I doubt uh, that the left-wing parties would stomach uh, having something like that as a, as a sort of public offering. Thank you. Uh, next question by Eric Selkov. The Jerusalem Post is reporting that Palestinians are concerned that a civil war is looming. What are your thoughts about that? Well, what we saw this week, uh, relatively unprecedented, was a big uh, uh, funeral, uh, I believe it was in Jenin, um, and outside of the refugee camp, this is an important element, which saw openly Hamas flags, uh, 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 some of the participants dressed in Hamas military fatigues um, with Hamas banners, chanting Hamas slogans, and that's something which we have not seen at that level uh, in the West Bank, in the Palestinian controlled areas for quite a while. And it certainly is something that's worrying Fatah, especially Mahmoud Abbas, the leader of Fatah and the leader of the Palestinian Authority. Um, 
there is going to be a crackdown. It's probably something that the Israelis and the Palestinian Authority, I mean, it is something that they have, they share in common, this uh, unease, to put it mildly, about having Hamas uh, take hold or have some sort of hold uh, in the West Bank. What we have seen uh, over the last few years is certainly uh, a loosening of the grip of Fatah in some of the major cities. Uh, and today, you know, it, it's argued that, that, you know, Mahmoud Abbas, some would say he doesn't have a grip of what's going on in the ground. And we are reverting to a certain extent to a pre-Oslo uh, reality where each municipality pretty much controlled itself, developed its own, uh, you know, security, economy, social services. Uh, and it, it was decentralized. Obviously, Oslo Accords created the Palestinian Authority and it was supposed to be centralized under a leadership with a democratic system because of the uh, mistrust, perhaps, of Mahmoud Abbas, because of the way uh, the Palestinian uh, system is run. Uh, many would point to corruption. Uh, there's been a sort of weakening of this centralization, uh, especially also the, you know, when there's been strikes or demonstrations about social services, about education, about all these sort of things. We've seen the Palestinian security services come down very hard. Uh, I, it was... Um, a number of months ago, a very prominent Palestinian critic was picked up in Hebron and was beaten to death by uh, Palestinian uh, security services. That uh, was the straw that broke a lot of uh, the camel's back for a lot of people. A lot of people very angry. So a lot of people who understood that uh, this is the leadership of the Palestinian Authority. And obviously, they, they found it abhorrent and they, they, they took to the streets and there was repercussions for those who, who took to the streets. So. Um, I don't think we're at the point of civil war, um, but certainly Fatah do not have as much control, or the PA does not have as much control as it used to. Mahmoud Abbas is certainly not seen as a, a strong leader. His approval ratings are extremely low at the moment. Some argue that he's been buttressed and, and propped up by the West, and that's the only reason he's staying in charge. As we know, he is, what is he, something like... Uh, uh, 16, 17 years into a four or five year term. Uh, he refuses to hold any sorts of election, whether it's presidential, uh, uh, parliamentary, uh, parliamentary or municipal, perhaps because he believes that Hamas would win uh, in the West Bank, which again would be unprecedented. So he certainly has very little legitimacy in the West Bank. Uh, the question is whether Hamas can get a foothold. Again, the scenes that we saw this week uh, would demonstrate that it's certainly trying. Uh, and we know it is trying, um, but I don't think we're at the point of uh, civil war yet, even though there are regular clashes between clans. We, we heard about this in Hebron. Um, so it's, I would say it's closer to anarchy at this point rather than civil war. Yes, and just to add and remind that Mahmoud Abbas is 86 years old. Of course, also a factor. Yes. Okay, thank you very, very much. We have come to the close of our webinar and podcast. Uh, thank you, Mr. Perry, again, for taking the time to update us this week. For our viewers and listeners, please join us Friday at 1 Eastern for a webinar with Aram Hamparian on the Nagorno-Karabakh War of 2020 in Armenian perspective. Thank you all again for joining us. And have a great day.